Evening to you all. <clears throat> so here we are now uh, entering into the third week of the retreat for those who just came and those who have already done your six. Well, you can add that would be week nine. So the shore has left your sight (laughs) and the shore to which you are traveling has not yet appeared so you're really kind of out there in the middle of the ocean are you not (laughs) not a single bird is in your mast (laughs) to give you signs of hope So where then to turn, where to turn for orientation? So I've got this idea that maybe we should turn to the teachings of the Buddha. (laughs) So last night with uh, my Dharma friend Greg, you had a, a really beautiful faith talk. And I just remember this, these lines of, uh, the finest silk from Benares and the <laughs> Damascus steel, you know. I was there, I tell you. I could practically smell the hair on the belly of the sticky being. And there's all different kinds of ways to... to uh, convey what's important and story is is one of them, right? It bypasses a lot of our uh, mental rigidity. Kind of brings us along in a multi-sensory kind of way and then wakes us up in the middle of some insight about what we're doing here. So it's a lovely talk. So tonight I'm actually going to pick up a, a, a different theme a theme that is related to the topic of wise effort, wise effort. Uh, I warned you the first night that I was a pragmatic kind of being. So um, you're going to get a pragmatic kind of talk. So given that you're in the, the middle of the ocean now and you're you're managing your own uh, sailing vessel with uh, occasional advice from your teachers. This is part of what you need to know. So you can set your sails and your rudder and uh, with some confidence. So as probably most of you know, wise effort is part of the eightfold path. And the Eightfold Path, of course, is the Buddha's formula for how to develop and liberate the heart-mind. So starting with the Four Noble Truths, which is the, the problem statement part of the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha talks a lot about dukkha and its causes and how to be f- free of it. And when you, you go to the drop-down menu... <laughs> The way to be free from it is the Eightfold Path, right? 
It's like you click on the path to liberation of the mind, drops down the eight, eight steps of the path. So wise effort is actually the sixth step on the path. And it's the first in what's called the samadhi section or the concentration section of the path. And it's followed by wise mindfulness and wise concentration. So to talk first about context, one of the the major principles of the Buddhist teachings is that it's actually wisdom that liberates us from the delusion which causes suffering. And if you remember that, you can see how these three aspects of the uh, samadhi section of the path work together. So in order for there to be sustained capacity for deep seeing, which would be uh, wise mindfulness, there, wise concentration, there needs to be wise mindfulness. And in order for there to be strong Mindfulness, there needs to be a kind of wise effort which develops it. And the Buddha was really clear that effort is required in order to liberate the mind from the kind of deep misunderstandings which flow from delusion. So our conditioned habits of misunderstanding how things are have really uh, deep grooves, deep patterns Uh, and it's difficult to overcome that. We have a kind of uh, well-established view of things which is unfortunately uh, wrong. So (laughs) this actually has to be broken through. So if you look at the Buddha's own path, he really required a lot of heroic effort. So even with the map that, that he left us, where we're not starting from scratch, we still really need to sustain effort. And the Buddha says in one part of his teachings that uh, no one can purify the mind of another, meaning this is uh, ultimately a do-it-yourself kind of job with the support of the, the teachings, the contact of the teachings, and the support of teachers. But it's important to know what's, what is called for uh, when we're talking about effort because it's talking about effort expended in a particular kind of context in a particular direction and in a particular way. So this means that the kind of attention that's actually offered to immediate experience needs to be functional and it needs to be deployed in a way that's actually useful. So we had a talk on virya, which of course is closely uh, related to energy. And energy empowers effort, it fuels it. And we know from our own observation that energy or effort can appear in unwholesome ways and in skillful ways. So you, you could say, okay, if you look at like the pursuit of, I don't know, Um, logging in the Amazon. Uh, There's a lot of energy that goes goes into that. Would you say that it's skillful? No, but there's a lot of planning. There's a lot of physical effort. There's a lot of, you know, bypassing of 
of laws and human considerations and all the rest of that. Yes, that's plenty of energy, but that's not really the kind of energy we're talking about when we're looking at our own practice. If you look at the Dalai Lama and his decades-long pursuit of some sort of uh, peaceful resolution to the situation in Tibet, you would say, yeah, there's energy there, a lot of energy, a lot of virya. And you can see in that circumstance, it's the same uh, quality of mind, but it's arising with wholesome factors and is directed in a wholesome kind of way. So in the context of the Eightfold Path, we're really looking for a particular kind of wholesome energy to be called forth. And this is, in the big picture, the exertion to bring forward wholesome states of consciousness which are directed to liberation from suffering. So in order for effort to actually move us along, it needs to work in alignment with other parts of the path, especially wise view and wise intention. So if we were going to say energy for what, it's energy to actually practice the path to liberation. And the Buddha gives us a particular teaching about the application of energy in the uh, the teaching of the four great endeavors. So when you go to, to wise effort on the Eightfold Path, and you hit the drop-down menu for that, you get the four great endeavors. And here he gets very specific about what you want to cultivate and what you want to let go of. And this is kind of a... Um, higher level, big picture analysis of what's involved with this. And, you know, the basic uh, premise in the Buddhist system is that we want to be happy and we don't want to suffer. And that if we know how to move towards our deepest happiness, towards our greater happiness, we'll actually direct our effort to increase what makes us truly happy and move away from what doesn't. So this, this uh, binary way of looking at what should be cultivated or increased and what should be uh, abandoned and mitigated ties into another teaching on the Eightfold Path which has to do with mundane wise view. Mundane wise view. And this, of course, is part of the very first step of the Eightfold Path where the Buddha clarifies that there's actually a a moral and functional distinction that runs through the causal universe. So he says, actions which arise from greed, aversion, and delusion or suffering, and when acted on, lead us deeper into enmeshment with suffering. And he says, conversely, Actions which arise from generosity, renunciation, metta, compassion, and wisdom are onward leading and move us towards liberation. So these, when they're developed and acted upon, these attitudes and qualities of mind actually move us towards empowerment. They make it possible for us to practice what will lead to freedom. So 
this step on the Eightfold Path, the sixth step on the Eightfold Path, wise effort, actually repeats and operationalizes this insight that's present there in mundane wise uh, view. This distinction between wholesome and unwholesome and the karmic and uh, uh, causal follow-ons when we act out of one or we act out of the other. So wise effort defines four specific general tasks called the endeavors. And these lay out how to relate to what's unwholesome in the mind and how to relate to what's wholesome in the mind. So I'd like to to review this briefly with you and then spend a fair amount of time talking in particular about how to practice with the wholesome factors of mind, which is usually not addressed too specifically uh, on retreat. But let's start with the unwholesome because that's where the Buddha starts. So the first two of the great endeavors have to do with unwholesome. And the first is to prevent the arising of unarisen unwholesome state. So you got a double negative, which is kind of like, you know, a backflip off the board or something. To prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states, meaning they're not there yet, you want to like uh, bar the door. So if you're going to sloganeer this, you could say, this is, this is the don't get yourself in trouble motto. So unwholesome states, he's talking about the defilements of mind, greed, hatred, delusion, and the states that flow from them. These are all states of suffering. So consider some of the ways you might keep them from arising, which is really what he's talking about here. Well, one thing, example of this might be like sense restraint. You know, those of you who have come in to see, see your teachers and you've said, no, my mind is doing this and it's doing that and it's doing that. Every time I see people in the dining room, I say, blah, 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 blah. What, what is your teacher likely to say? Quit looking around. <laughs> Sense restraint, right? Like stick to stick to your own knitting. You know, don't be uh, going out there getting involved with you know uh, what you imagine other people are experiencing or what you imagine about how they are. You actually have no idea, and you're just like opening the door to what was formerly an unarisen, unwholesome state. So sense restraint, not letting the mind run wild and get lost in its experience. So another example of practicing in this particular area would be maintaining sila, uh, observing the precepts, right? Remembering that these are uh, guardrails of uh, behavior that keep us from acting in ways that harm ourselves and others. We're preventing the arising of an unarisen, unwholesome state. And then uh, a third way would be maintaining strong and continuous mindfulness. So if one had perfect mindfulness, perfect uninterrupted strong mindfulness, 
unwholesome, unarisen states would stay that way. Unarisen. But we may have a leak or two. <laughs> you may have noticed. All right? So that, that's kind of on the uh, good luck with that one. <laughs> that might be a little down the road. Okay. But th- so those are some examples of practicing the, with that first endeavor, great, great endeavor. So the second of the great endeavors also has to do with unwholesome states. It is to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen, meaning they're there and you recognize that they're present. To abandon them, they're there. You want to practice in a way that abandons them, that lets go of them, that mitigates them, that supports them in passing away, that removes them as an obstruction to your practice. So, what do you think this is? It's hindrance practice, right? They're there. Now you've got to figure out what to do with them. So, these are the very attitudes in the state that the, the Buddha has said are dysfunctional when he discusses mundane wise view. So if you're going to slogan uh, this one, you might say, don't cling to suffering when it arises, because they're all suffering states. That may not always be immediately uh, recognized, but they are suffering states. And a lot of our practice is here. So, you know the teaching of the first and second arrow? Have you heard that teaching? A lot of you have. Okay, this I would call the one and a half arrows. (laughs) Right? So, here, if 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 there's enough mindfulness in the mind, then you recognize, okay, this is a hindrance. How do you recognize it's a hindrance? Usually because you start to struggle. You start to struggle or you start to experience difficulty of uh, some type or another in relationship to what mind states are present. And then you're trying to figure out what to do about it, right? Something is going on that seems to be getting in the way of your, your meditation. And this is the practice with hindrances. So it basically involves finding a wise and skillful relationship with the hindrances. And in order to do that, you have to mobilize the wholesome aspects of mind that are there, including mindfulness, and bring these into engagement with the dukkha eruption that is happening. Right? All of the ways of working with the hindrances involve having enough mindfulness to first of all recognize that they're actually there. And then enough um, wise view to recognize that you don't want to support their proliferation or their strengthening and to find a way to use mindfulness to relate to them when they're present. So... 
I understand that there was a hindrance talk, and if you have particular hindrance that you're working with, you've probably talked about it with your teacher and gotten particular advice about how to work with that. So there are the main strategies of kind of interrogating it or investigating it directly with mindfulness. There is also the strategy of employing some sort of remedy uh, directly to it. Uh, Sometimes you're able to uh, let go of it and redirect to something that's wholesome. But these are all techniques. These are all ways, methods to practice. And I'm sure that you've had a lot of mentoring in this particular area of practice. And there'll be more talks about this too. And a lot of this comes up in the practice meetings. You know, I, I know I often ask the people that I'm working with, notice any hindrances? If they don't, volunteer them. Uh, but very often in the practice meeting, it's basically, um, um, how should I put this? You complaining about your hindrances. <laughs> often that's what it is. <laughs> when, you, when you get right down to the, right down to the chase. So um, the the states tend to obscure the mind and weaken awareness, which in turn makes it difficult to observe moment-to-moment experience. So if they aren't addressed with some skill and some commitment, then these adventitious defilements cover over the natural radiance of mind. You heard that teaching of the Buddha, the mind is radiant and pure, and that, that it is visited from time to time, well, maybe more than from time to time, maybe frequently, uh, maybe like Seattle in the winter, uh, with adventitious defilements that cloud over the radiance. And when the Buddha is talking about adventitious defilements, he's talking about the hindrances, all the versions of that. But this is a very interesting pointing in that description that he makes that these are not the nature of the mind itself. They are visitors. And just like with all uh, uh, unwelcome visitors, um, there are skillful ways to support them in taking up, uh, abandoning your residence and um, moving along their way. So if you want to restore the liberating viewpoint, the basic thing is to sustain or restore mindfulness. And then with clear seeing there, when it's reestablished or established and maintained, concentration will arise. Then knowing reality will be more continuous and the the jigsaw-like aspects... um, will gradually come together and the puzzle of our understanding will start to fill in with more continuity of knowing, more continuity of observation. And then wisdom will arise in the mind and that's really what liberates. So that's the download on basically, big picture download on working with the unwholesome states, right? Prevention of their arising, abandonment of them when they're there. 
so now let's take a look at the wholesome side of the four great endeavors, the remaining two. And as I said earlier, I think this is often uh, undertaught, and there are a number of different reasons for that. So let's take a look at why we often don't recognize these wholesome attitudes and states and how we can uh, actually strengthen them and call them forward and cultivate them. So first of all, I think they're overlooked because they're actually quite frequently present. Because we have many everyday states that actually flow from these qualities. You know, their relative frequency may cause us to overlook them. So there's a lot of everyday goodness, right? There's a lot of everyday goodness in ourselves and in other people. I remember uh, a few years ago I was driving through one of the small towns around here uh, on my way to another small town around here because uh, that's what it is, you know, this kind of lattice of um, uh, lightly populated areas. And as I drove by an old graveyard, it was, it was still in use, um, I saw this banner like draped across the the stacked stone wall that was near there and it said thanks to all the people who helped our son. First looking at that I thought thanks to all the people who helped our son what is what's that? And then I had like an intuitive understanding that okay, somebody's son had passed away and this was the family telling the people in town that they appreciated all the support. Right? And this is one of the beautiful things about small town life is that sometimes there is a lot of just like spontaneous support, spontaneous generosity, um, just comes just comes forward in need and there's a lot of a lot of goodness that we have i mean we do a lot of good things all the time you know you even in your daily life you know you you hold a door opens up behind you so it doesn't just slam in somebody's face you know you if you're at a checkout counter and you know somebody's forgetting their bag you say hey well you know forgetting your bag you know you see something on the on the street, you know, you pick it up, you throw it in the trash. I mean, we we do all these kinds of things all the time. You notice when somebody you work with is having a hard time, you you know, engage with them. You offer them some support without saying I'm offering you support or making a big deal out of it. We do a lot of this all the time. We act from wholesomeness. So, frequently there. The other thing about wholesome states is we don't usually experience them as problematic and so, and we tend to be oriented towards problems. So, wholesome states or qualities don't hurt 
So they don't necessarily draw our attention in that kind of way either. And then often they're like no big deal to us, right? They're not necessarily dramatic or they're not particularly riveting, especially when they're compared to the very vivid nature of unwholesome states and qualities, which are states of suffering. Uh, So, you know, we may have a mushroom cloud arising of suffering, but we don't usually experience ourselves as having like a mushroom cloud of arising of goodness, right? You know, we often miss them because they might be subtle. So unless they're novel or they're strong, they don't necessarily draw our attention. And I think this is also partly because while they might be pleasant, it's often primarily a mental kind of pleasure than, rather than a predominantly sensory one, right? So it's an internal uh, kind of experience that arises as part of the, um, the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of the heart-mind. So there can be body resonances with these states, but it, they often don't lead in that kind of way. So we also may not see them because even though we might have these states and qualities, we might have a kind of yes, but attitude towards them. Yeah, yes, but. Yeah, I did do that. Yes, but. But, you know, yeah, I would do that. But of course anybody would do that. Of course, yeah, I did that. But then, you know, part of my motive was this. and Right? Um, or we don't want to be uh, seen as inflated or or bragging, or we're aware of our imperfections and uh, we think if we're not 90% pure, it doesn't count, right? So it's a real binary view here. And sometimes there's a social prohibition on actually uh, naming even to ourselves our goodness. So I had a, an interesting experience this summer where I actually was invited to... Um, teach a Dharma retreat in a different country. And I realized uh, after a certain exercise that was part of the retreat that there can be cultural considerations here too uh, that can make it challenging for people to actually recognize and name their goodness. So one of the things that that I said as part of this um, teaching that I was offering as I was talking to the importance and the value of seeing your own goodness, seeing your good and wholesome qualities of mind. And then as, as, as part of this, I invited people who were on the retreat, a lot of whom uh, knew each other, to uh, name qualities or, uh, of, of themselves that, that they felt were wholesome or particular things that they had done that they felt were wholesome. And it was a very interesting reaction to it because it was almost like I, you know, was inviting them to like, I don't know, take off their clothes or something. (laughs) And it was, uh, my subjective experience was, they kind of like froze. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. 
then a, a, a couple of different people did offer things, but I realized afterwards, oh, I don't, I don't think that this is, this is like done here, you know. So I sort of had like stepped in something there, and uh, after, after, well, you know. <laughs> so afterwards, on on the way to the airport, somebody w- was driving me to the airport, and uh I, I asked them, and this person also was uh, not native to this this culture, but had lived there for a long time. And the the person said to me, and I said something about this exercise, and you know how it seemed to, you know, people seemed to like uh, at the thought of like you know stating that anything like that in the group. And the and the per, the person who was driving me said, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah," she said. You know the culture I come from. People are like very upfront. Like if you were, um, you know, talking to a group of people like that, you would be like saying what you know, bragging about what you had and how good you were about this and how good you are about that. She said, in this culture, no, 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 no. She said, I made a lot of really bad mistakes when I first <laughs> moved here. I was like, you know, because I, I was relating to people out of my own cultural conditioning, and then I found out like, oh, no, we do not do this here. So, yes. <laughs> there, there also might be some biological uh, underpinnings for this relatively low profile of wholesome uh, states. Uh, so if you're going to ask the question, is there a biological basis towards the arising of unwholesome suffering states and towards the noticing of unwholesome suffering states rather than wholesome ones, I think the answer is that it's probably likely. So Rick Hansen, uh, who's a PhD level psychologist um, who works a lot around uh, positive psychology, he's also a Buddhist teacher, wrote this very interesting book called The Buddha's Brain. He's written a number of books, but um, this, I believe, was his his first one that got to some prominence in the Buddhist community. So this is what he says about it. He says, Imagine our mammalian ancestors dodging dinosaurs in a worldwide Jurassic Park 70 million years ago, constantly looking over their shoulders, alert to the slightest crackle of brush, ready to freeze or bolt or attack depending on the situation. The quicker the dead. If they failed to duck a stick, which looked a bit like a predator, then they'd probably be killed. The ones that lived to pass on their genes paid a lot of attention to negative experiences. So in another section he says, your brain has a built-in negativity bias that primes you for avoidance. This makes you suffer in a variety of ways. For starters, it generates an unpleasant background of anxiety, which for some people can be quite intense. Anxiety also makes it harder to bring attention inward for self-awareness or contemplative practice since the brain keeps scanning to make sure there's no problem. The negativity bias fosters or intensifies other unpleasant emotions like anger, sorrow, depression, guilt, and shame. It highlights past losses and failures, 
downplays present abilities and exaggerates future obstacles. Consequently, the mind continually tends to render unfair verdicts about a person's character, conduct, or possibilities. So that's part of the biological basis of why we notice the unwholesome more often. Suffering catches our attention. And suffering has a great deal of overlap with unwholesome states. It's not a one-to-one by any means, but we fall into unwholesome states readily, although we might have the wisdom to work with them as such. And to pick up again this this thread of cultural views and how that, that impacts our seeing goodness or not seeing goodness or finding approval for ourselves or being uh, disapproving of ourselves and uh, withholding our own support. You have to look at the role that social conditioning plays in the development of a negativity bias towards ourselves and our experience. So the majority culture has a big role in forming self-view and judgment. So with this I'm going to talk mostly about the culture as I know it in North America, as that's primary my own experience, and that's where we are right now. But I think it's true to say that Western culture is particularly hyper-competitive and hyper-individualistic, where the self is often seen as a kind of closed system, you know, uh, stand alone and set off against and graded against all others. Now all fixed self-views are delusional, but some are more delusional than others. So our own egoic identity tends to be a construct of conditioned views and beliefs that we draw from the larger culture. That's not the only source of self-view, but it's certainly a major source. Uh, And what would you say that the larger culture emphasizes values and markets? It's things like power, youth, attractiveness, wealth, success, popularity, with this idea that happiness is found in and limited to sense pleasures. So our egoic identity, our self-view, is constructed in this matrix and adopts these beliefs and preferences. And we learn it in the family, in school, in the media, in the wider community. And, you know, with the rise of social media, um, there is intense conditioning, uh, especially on the part of uh, people who use social media often, and particularly young people who have no other alternative context. They're sealed into these uh, these uh, worlds of uh, fantasy that seem so real. So we all have ideas and thoughts 
and feelings and wishes and hopes and expectations, aspirations, longings, aversions, repulsions, comparisons, competitions, standards, etc., conscious and unconscious, which are conditioned. You know, if we can see them simply as they are without adding identification and narrative ownership to them, without a big eye in the middle of it, it's not a problem. But often we don't see them and we don't recognize their source. But at the same time, these become the measuring sticks that we use to determine whether we're okay, whether we deserve love, respect, compassion. And who can ever measure up? Right? When you look at the criteria I read for one being valued in this culture. So these kinds of conditioned views also make us prone to see our real or imagined deficiencies disproportionately and make it challenging to see our goodness and our good qualities. So in fact, these cultural views of what makes a person worthwhile or successful don't even reference wholesome qualities. It's not even the measuring stick. So no wonder we don't see the wholesome But the Buddha says we should look, we should see, and we should double down on this. Double down on the wholesome, seeing the wholesome, valuing the wholesome, cultivating the wholesome. So let's take a look at the practice related to wholesome qualities of the heart-mind. So the first of these two endeavors is to arouse wholesome qualities that haven't yet arisen. So here are some ways that we can do that. So a first thing is using our mind's capacity for reflection to arouse these. So there's a lot of value in being conscious of and wisely setting motivation and intention at the outset of practice periods. And this can be key in arousing commitment and directing effort in a wholesome way. There are a number of ways that that you can use the mind's reflective capacity to prime the energy needed for wise effort and to bring forward wholesomeness in the mind stream. So here's some examples of things that can be reflected on. The rarity of birth as a human being and the fortunate circumstances of having the capacity as a human to practice the Dharma. Because it's rare. The good fortune of connecting to the Dharma. You folks have hit the karmic lottery. (laughs) You have. To hear the Dharma, to have enough uh, going for you in terms of the conditions, to actually be in a place like this, to be able to do the, hear these practices and to do these practices. For some people, reflecting on the, the uh, certain nature of our death and the uncertainty of its timing. Are you a la-la-la, tra-la-la kind of being? You know? If you are a la-la-la, tra-la-la kind of being, and yet you're in these very fortunate circumstances, this might be a good opportunity to really reflect on this to arouse virya, 
to arouse willingness and integrity of effort. Another reflection could that could be strengthening and energizing and could arouse wholesome states of mind is a reflection on the gifts that a liberated mind can offer to other beings. If the mind is inclined to service, if you want to make a difference in the world, if you're concerned about issues like climate change, economic injustice, racism, don't you want to be able to have a mind that can handle it? That can actually hold true to wisdom and compassion in your acting in the world, can act in a powerful, integrous way that can inspire other people. I would say that kind of reflection in the early part of your sitting might be quite useful in arousing wholesome qualities of mind. So when we cultivate the kind of wholesome states that support our well-being, we actually are entering into a virtuous cycle. So this arousing of these kinds of states actually starts to change the ecology of the mind, making the soil more fertile for the seeds of other wholesome states to take hold. So another way in which you can arouse where you are arousing wholesome states of mind is by taking the meditation instructions which are designed to establish mindfulness and and operationalizing them. Because in establishing mindfulness, you provide an essential element for the arising of all other wholesome states because no wholesome state can be present in the absence of mindfulness. It's a necessary element for all of them. So you can see how primary the cultivation of mindfulness that we're doing here on retreat is to opening up all the rest of it. Then with the establishment of mindfulness, the door is open for the the other six of the seven factors of awakening to arise in the mind stream. And these are are what prepare... uh, the stage for classic awakening. So then comes investigation, energy, uh, rapture, tranquility, concentration, equanimity. We can also arouse wholesome states of mind by practicing compassion by observing the precepts. We practice other wholesome qualities like resolve in doing so. Oh no, I'm not going to do that. I took the precepts, I'm going to keep the precepts. In observing the container agreement, we practice truthfulness, renunciation, generosity, right? We keep our agreement with others. In practicing the Brahma Viharas, whether individually or by chanting them together, we arouse wise intention, metta, and compassion. Another reflection that you can do that can arouse wholesome attitudes of mind and states is reflecting on your own wholesome past actions. Now, this is an exercise that is uh, 
uh, a not unusual exercise when practicing in very traditional Buddhist environments. Um, You know, the teacher will say to you, uh, say you're trying to do something like become more concentrated or, you know, learn a new practice or you're you're struggling with faith uh, in some way or another. The teacher will very frequently say to you, okay, I want you to go off for a while and I want you to... Uh, reflect on your wholesome uh, uh, deeds and uh, aspects. Now, this is a very interesting thing because often I've found when you give this instruction to a student in this Western context, the first reaction that people have is like... Now that's interesting, isn't it? To to actually see right there that the conditioned, uh, the conditioned reaction to hmm, considering that, like a revulsion to considering your own goodness, revulsion to this invitation to actually let your mind and memory bring forward these kinds of. Uh, approving thoughts of things that you respect about yourself and to linger with this recognition, with this realization, to really use this uh, to support yourself in this. Very powerful. Very powerful kind of thing. I can remember once working with a student who was having a lot of struggle in her practice, a lot of, a lot of very difficult things uh, coming up. And I gave her this exercise and uh, sent her away. And I said, okay, next time we meet, I want to sit down with you and I want you to bring your list with you and I want, because I want you to tell me about it. I want you to read it to me. And when she came into the, the space... I saw she had like she had her her little yogi sneak notebook with her. She had her notebook with her and she had about five pages of stuff written out in fairly small handwriting and as soon as she sat down and she start started reading it to me, I thought this one will be fine. This one will be fine because she could find, she connected with this. She connected with her goodness. Right? And so it was very strengthening for her. And, you know, another way you can arouse what's wholesome is by the many wise choices uh, you make throughout the course of the day on the cushion and off, right? When you choose to do this instead of that, right? You could do this and you choose to do that. You choose the highest functional option considering all the circumstances. And then the, the second of the um, tasks for working with wholesome states is to maintain and perfect wholesome states already arisen. This means they're there, and then you work with them in a skillful way that supports them and develops them. So 
if you recognize the state as wholesome, you're already practicing in a way that shifts conditions towards the increased presence and the future proliferation of the state. Isn't that an interesting thing? Just by mindfully and specifically recognizing the presence of a wholesome state, you're strengthening it and causing it to uh, uh, appear more often and in stronger kinds of forms. And that's because mindful recognition tends to strengthen what is wholesome. So mindfulness has this most amazing property that it serves to both undercut and weaken what is unwholesome and to strengthen and support what's wholesome. It's kind of like you know, the magic pH where it suppresses the weeds and it encourages the flowers. So this recognition is important, so therefore it's very functional to incline the mind to recognize these states and to endeavor to protect them. And this could involve doing things like noting them specifically and choosing to feel them in the body and mind. So say you, you recognize uh, the impulse or the, an attitude of renunciation is present. You could name that, this is renunciation. You could name this, this is wholesome. See what it feels like in the body to let go. Right? To go from uh, kind of the kinesthetic sense of you know, grasping or craving or leaning forward, wanting to get, wanting to hold, to just dropping it, letting it go. The peace that comes forward from that. Wholesome states that are already there tend to be maintained most easily with continuity of awareness which preserves mindfulness. So if you're on a mindfulness roll, you want to see if you can keep that going by how you're practicing because it's the great supporter and protector of wholesome states of mind as well as being a, a bar to or a barrier to the arising of the unwholesome ones. Now, obviously, all states are impermanent. You know, this is the basic insight of insight meditation. So you can't hold on to a state by will. But we can gently invite a wholesome state to remain or to reappear if we do it in a non-demanding, non-clinging way. May this, may metta uh, continue in the mind. Right? Light, light. You're not instructing it, you're mm, inviting it. Now, when one wholesome state passes away, the c- continued presence of mindfulness, if there is a continued presence of mindfulness, makes it more like that likely that it'll be followed by another wholesome state. So even though things continue to change, things continue to arise and pass away, because that's how it is, the product mix, if you want to put it that way, of the mind evolves in the direction of more wholesomeness as the suffering states lose the conditions which offer them footing. Right? 
So they're no longer being fertilized by unwise attention. So they're weakening. And mindfulness is simultaneously um, supporting the growth, the development, and the uh, uh, new arisings of wholesome states. So in working with wholesome states, we can strengthen them by continuing those practices which directly develop develop them. So the Buddha talks about perfecting these wholesome states. Well, you know, that's kind of like a big phrase, perfecting them. Like, what does that mean? But we we know that um, it seems to be the case with many of these wholesome qualities of mind that there doesn't necessarily seem to be an end point to how far they can be developed. If you take something like the teaching on the five spiritual faculties, there's an explicit understanding that the five spiritual faculties, for instance, which are wholesome, um, qualities of mind uh, arising within practice, actually can become powers of mind, powers of mind. Not just conditioned arisings that might be there once in a while, but they can actually become reliably present and functional. So perfecting them is a a process, but we can start by setting the intention to cultivate the wholesome and by continuing to do so. So in these, uh, in this, these practices that we have, whether it's the meta practice or the the mindfulness practice or the renunciation practice or the sila practice. With these practices, various elements of wholesomeness gradually work together, leaving less room for the unwholesome uh, to show themselves. So thus a virtuous cycle of the mind purifying itself arises, starting with clarity about what is to be cultivated and what is to be let go and the development of mindfulness. So you can see the genius of the system, you know, the initial pointing to how suffering is created through uh, the grasping caused by ignorance to uh, the the Eightfold Path, the method for uh, educating the mind the mundane wise view, making this uh, distinction between wholesome and unwholesome, and uh, the the suffering and the uh, liberating qualities of uh, those two different uh, dimensions, and all the methods of cultivation of what is wholesome, a really clear laying out of in the teaching on the wise effort and the four great endeavors about how to, how to apply the mind in relationship to uh, what's unwholesome and what's wholesome. And then the meditative steps of uh, wise mindfulness and wise concentration, giving you the tools to be able to develop and sustain wise attention that lets you do that. So, I always wind up when I, I do these kinds of talks feeling 
um, such overwhelming appreciation for the historical Buddha. I mean, I don't, I don't think uh, humanity has had a greater genius. But not only a, a genius, not only on the, the intellectual level, the, you know, the clarity of perception, the ability to uh, turn these, these insights into very specific, grounded, uh, clear instructions, but the quality of heart that would lead somebody to undertake the path of the investigation and uh, development of his own heart and mind in in order to be able to offer it for the benefit of beings. So, you know, we're all the uh, um, beneficiaries of this this particular person. So... um, So this is a this is a being I would bow down to. So having us all have having the the karma to be here together, doing these practices together, um, benefiting from um, what was done uh, so long ago. Great good fortune, great good fortune, and the tools are in your hands. May we engage the many wholesome qualities of heart and mind which are present within us and use them for our own liberation and for the benefit of all beings. May we all awaken together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.